0: Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Galatians chapter 3, while you're turning there, let's pray together. Lord, as we come now under the authority of your word, we ask, Lord, that you would make us worthy of the calling to which you've called us, worthy of the gospel, not in the sense of deserving it, but that our lives would accord with it. And so I pray now that you would have your work and your people through the preaching of your word, by your spirit, conforming us, shaping us, convicting us, strengthening us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 3 is where we are this morning, and we're going to look at verses 26 to 29, the end of the chapter. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29 In his book, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctives in a Roman World, author Larry Hurtado, he describes something rather extraordinary that took place during the first century with the birth of the New Testament church. In this book, he explains why it was, as he believes, that an increasing number of people converted to Christianity in the Roman world during the first century, despite the fact that it was also the most persecuted? How was it that the early church exploded with such massive exponential growth while at the same time also being heavily persecuted? How is that possible? Well, Hurtado Suggests that at least part of the reason for this explosive growth was because it was a community of people that defied social categories. It was a community of people that defied and ignored and rejected the social categories of the day. In other words, it was a radically countercultural people, a radically different community of people. He lists several examples. Let me highlight just a few of them for you. Number one, number one, he says it was a multiracial, multi-ethnic church. But Christianity was absolutely shocking to the first century world because for most people, for most cultures, religion and faith were simply extensions of their culture. And so each culture then sort of had its own separate Religion, So it it just stayed within these certain ethnic racial boundaries. And so it was really your culture that in essence determined your faith and not the other way around. But with Christianity, one's faith wasn't only independent from their culture, but was actually more foundational than their culture or race or ethnicity. In fact, it created a certain bond that was much deeper than any of those things. And thus it created this strange, odd, multi-ethnic community. Here's the second reason he gives. He says, it's also because they had a high commitment to care for the poor and the marginalized. He explains how at the time, while it was considered normal to care for the poor and needy in one's own family or one's own tribe, there was no obligation, however, to care for all, especially those within a different cultural background. But then along comes this new community of people building their lives on the teachings of Jesus who shockingly embraced all who were in need and marginalized. And it wasn't a community that was stratified and separated across socioeconomic classes or rich and poor distinctions. No, they cared for all. The third category he gives is that Christianity offered a revolutionary sexual ethic in a highly paganized, highly sexualized Roman culture, Christianity offered something totally different, totally unique. In fact, rather than demeaning women as mere objects or property or of less value and significance than men, as most cultures, most people did at the time, instead, Christianity actually elevated women to the place of equals among men, empowered women, Christianity was so revolutionary in terms of its views on sex and marriage and women. And so it was highly attractive because it took power and dominance away from men and it actually elevated the status and dignity of women. And so as a result of this new radically different, radically diverse community of people, Christianity just exploded on the map in the first century. Now, that wasn't to say it wasn't offensive, but on the other hand, make no mistake about it, it was also very attractive. Why? Because here was this radically diverse group of people who were being shaped by one thing and one thing alone. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, that has power. That's attractive. That'll change the world. And, church, this morning we come here in Galatians chapter 3 to not only one of Paul's most memorable passages, but also to one of the Bible's most, I think, urgently relevant passages given the explosive, angry, diverse world in which we live today. Look there, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Friend, that statement is radical. It is revolutionary. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that these same categories listed here in verse 28, race, socioeconomic class, gender, isn't it amazing that these are the exact same hot-button issues that we are facing in our own world right now today? And the reality is, is that there are so many out there in the world who are wondering during these chaotic times, okay, how are we ever just going to all get along? How can diverse people of differing ethnicities, differing cultures, differing classes, differing genders, how can we all keep from hating and despising and killing each other? And our world is desperately trying to offer all kinds of answers to those questions, all kinds of solutions, but hear me, the Bible offers only one. There is only one answer. There is only one solution ultimately, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's not being overly simplistic. That's the transforming power of the gospel. So let's see what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. Would you stand with me as we read these verses together? Beginning in verse 26, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated this morning. It's been a few weeks now since we've been in Galatians, so let's just make sure that We all have our bearings here before we jump into verses 26 to 29. If you remember, Paul, he has had one clear message, one clear theme running throughout this entire letter, and it's that sinners can be justified, sinners can be right with God only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's not by works of the law, it's not by... Any religious system, it's not by anything I do. Back here in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul he's gone to great lengths, hasn't he? In order to explain and unpack this important doctrine of justification by faith alone. Verses 1 to 5. Chapter 3, he reminds the Galatians of their own experience of the gospel that he preached to them, and that by simply hearing it with faith not by works of the law these Galatians had received the spirit and so having begun by the spirit Paul warns them now not to turn back not to slip back into dependence upon the law in order to merit God's favor as these false teachers were saying and then notice chapters chapter 3 verses 6 to 9 Paul he reaches back even further than their own conversion making the case that all God's people can actually trace their spiritual lineage back to Abraham. Because Abraham was the example of someone who was justified only by his faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared innocent simply by faith alone. And then, verses 10 to 12, this righteousness, Paul says, was only made possible because. Jesus died to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that now, chapter 3, look there, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to Jews and Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So it's only those, Paul says then, who have the faith of Abraham who are the true children of Abraham. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. It doesn't matter if you have a single drop of Jewish blood. No. The true people of God have faith in Jesus. And, Paul says, notice there verse 15, this is seen in the fact that the law of Moses came centuries after Abraham. 430 years exactly, he says. And therefore, The law can't cancel out the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. No, all the law could do, Paul says, is reveal our sin. All the law could do is condemn us as sinners. So the law was given. It was added. Notice verse 19. To serve a very important purpose. A very important function. And yet it only had a temporary purpose. Verse 23, look there. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith should be revealed. Verse 24, the law was, get, was our guardian until Christ came. So, it served a temporary purpose, and that purpose was to show us our need for faith in Jesus. That our works can't save us. No, Christ alone died to bear the guilt of our sin And provide the righteousness that we need and purchase for us all of God's promises. And that's where Paul's been in chapter 3. And now we come this morning, notice, to verses 26 to 29. And interestingly, interestingly, most commentators believe that this passage right here, it serves as really the climax or the peak of all of chapters 3 and 4. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Those of faith... Not biological descendants, not those who keep the law, no, those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And now, here at the pinnacle, notice down in verse 29, if you are Christ's, if you have faith in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, you then are Abraham's offspring. So Paul is concluding now his argument here that he began all the way back in verse 7. And then, as we'll see in chapter 4, he's going to now elaborate and illustrate this whole idea now of, of sonship and what it means to be a son of Abraham, but more importantly, what it means to be a son of God. And that in Christ, you've now gone from a slave to a son. So, everything in chapter 3 has been leading up to verses 26 to 29. And now everything in chapter 4 is going to be leading away from verses 26 to 29. So it's very important, very critical here that you understand these verses. And so what Paul does here now then in verses 26 to 29 is he brings this argument to a close is he shows us now three important things that are true for those who have faith in Christ. So verse 25, But now that faith has come, so an important shift has now taken place in redemptive history and now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, three fundamental truths, three fundamental realities for how we relate vertically to God, inwardly toward Christ, and horizontally toward one another. So let's look at those three, heading, three under these three headings this morning. Number one, we are all sons of God in Christ. Verse 26. Number two, we have all put on Christ. And then number three, we have all become one in Christ. Verse 28. So first, we are all sons of God in Christ. Verse 26. Notice there, Paul says that one of the amazing glorious realities of the new covenant is that those who are in christ those who have faith in christ actually now become sons of god verse 26 for in christ jesus you are all sons of god through faith now what does paul mean here when he says that we are sons of god it seems that Paul has, I think, a few things in mind here, perhaps, based on what we see here in, in the text. So let me, let me just draw three things here I think he means when he says sons of God. Number one, being sons of God means we have now reached maturity. We've now reached maturity. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, why I stopped in my sermon mid-sentence at verse 25. Because if you remember, I just preached verses 23 to 25, but not verse 26. Why did I stop right there? And that's a good question. That's a a legitimate question. Interestingly, the the NIV breaks off verses 26 and 29 from verses 23 to 25 as a separate paragraph. So it, it can be separated, but... I want you to notice that verse 26 is connected to verse 25. How do we know that? Well, because of that little word for. Because. Meaning that verse 26 is the ground, it's the basis of verses 23 to 25. In other words, the reason that the period of the law has now come to an end, it's now done, verses 23 to 25 is because, verse 26, for we are now sons of God through faith in Christ. Meaning that to say we are sons of God is really the equivalent of saying we have now reached the age of maturity. We have now reached the age of adulthood and thus we no longer need the supervision of the law. Look back at verse 24. If you remember, Paul says that the law was our guardian. The law was our supervisor. The law was our strict babysitter. Remember that? Whose purpose was to provide constraints. provided moral constraints. It provided cultural constraints for the nation of Israel. That's what the law was purposed to do. All those dietary laws, all those ceremonial laws, it, it put up protective guards. In diet, and in dress, and in ritual, in order to supervise, in order to protect Israel. The babysitter was tasked with watching over the child during his years of immaturity, providing round-the-clock supervision, a sort of disciplinarian. That's the picture Paul paints here of the law. But at verse 25, now the faith has come, meaning now with the dawning of the new covenant in Christ, he says, we no longer need the guardian. No, the law was never meant to be permanent. It was only in place until Christ came. And now that Christ has come, the law's come to an end. It's stepped back so that Jesus can step forward. Now again, is Paul saying the law is bad? Well, no. No. The law is holy. The law is righteous. It's good. Romans 7. But the law doesn't have the power to change our hearts. The law can't give us a new heart. It can't give us a desire for holiness. So is the law irrelevant? Is it unimportant for the Christian? Well, no. We've seen this. It it reveals sin. It shows us the character of God, it shows us the unfolding plan of God. It makes us wise for salvation in Christ. It shows us how to live wisely in the world as God's new covenant people. But now that Christ has come, now the spirits living in us, Galatians three: four and five and six we no longer need a guardian. We've reached maturity. We've reached adulthood. In fact, look at chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under a guardian and managers until the date set by his father. So now we've reached maturity. Now we have a new heart and the law is now written on our hearts. And so this faith in Christ now, it transcends a mere written code. It transcends all the cultural trappings of Judaism, right? Rituals and ceremonies and customs. No, now we are sons of God who have reached maturity and what marks us now is faith. And faith alone. That's the first thing being a son means. We've reached maturity. We're grown up. Here's the second thing it means. Being a son of God means we are truly God's children now by faith alone. We're his children. I won't spend much time here because we're going to pick this up again in chapter 4. But it was J.I. Packer who famously said, and I think I've mentioned this before, but he said this. He said, if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity find out how much they make of being God's child and having God as their father. Friend, what a glorious reality. That by faith in Christ, we actually become children of God. Adopted sons and daughters of our Father. John chapter 1, verse 12, if you remember, John says to all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So yes, Jesus is exclusively and uniquely the Son of God, but now, by faith in Him, marvel of all marvels, we now have been given the right to become adopted children of God. That's incredible. That's amazing. Which means first, he loves us. He loves us with a tenderly fatherly affection. We're his children. We no longer need a fear, condemnation. He's our father. He cares for us the way he cares for his own son. And it also means no matter your background, No matter what you have done or haven't done, no matter your skin color, no matter your culture, no matter your gender, no matter your social class, we are all, all, Paul says, sons of God through faith. The Old Testament, Israel was called the son of God. Exodus 4. Hosea 11. But now Paul says, it's only those who have faith who are the sons of God. And thus, now we are brothers and sisters of the same family. And this family isn't based on biology, it isn't based on ethnicity, it isn't based on cultural and social distinctions, only on faith in Christ alone. I'll say more about that in a moment. Here's the third thing being a son means being sons of God means we're heirs. We're heirs. Verse 26, sons of God, is really the equivalent of being, notice in verse 29, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So being a son of Abraham and being a son of God are synonymous. It's the same thing. Or look down in chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Through God. So, being a son means being an heir. What's an heir? An heir was someone who was to rightfully receive the inheritance of their father. Everything that belonged to their father. Brothers and sisters, we're co-heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs of the kingdom. We get the kingdom It's ours. So listen, this is why gender pronouns in the Bible matter. You say, what do you mean, pastor? Well, some have taken offense here that Paul, very specifically, he calls us sons of God. Sons, right? In fact, this is what led the 2011 NIV translation to translate verse 26, not you are all sons of God, but you are all children of God, to sort of smooth over the maleness of that phrase. But that's a mistake. Why? Well, because in ancient times, it was the son who was the heir of his father's estate, his father's inheritance. And so, by referring here to men and women as sons of God, <laughs> Paul is actually highlighting here the woman's equality with the man. He's essentially saying that Christian women are legal heirs along with Christian men. There are co heirs, fellas, which in Paul's day was radically countercultural and raised their status to previously unknown heights. So ladies, don't get offended by that pronoun. No, embrace it, love it, cherish it. Just as men, don't, don't bristle at being called the bride of Christ. Those are beautiful metaphors. Beautiful. And what a wonderful truth we would have missed. And the reason this is all true, Paul says, is because notice verse 26, we are, here it is, in Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So, this is all true, Paul says, only by virtue of your union with Christ. And that's the second important reality I want you to see here. That now that faith has come, We're not only all sons of God in Christ, but we have all put on Christ. We have put on Christ. Look there, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, those three words there, verse 27, put on Christ. Or verse 26, in Christ Jesus, which are synonymous, by the way, These are at the very heart of the New Testament message. Or verse 28, look there. You are all one in Christ. So, faith, through faith, we are united to Christ. We are joined to Christ. We put on Christ. This is what theologians call our union with Christ. In fact, that expression, in Christ, get this it's found approximately 172 times in Paul's writings. I mean, this this whole concept of union with Christ, it's everywhere in the New Testament. I mean, this is the very center of Paul's theology. If you don't get this, you don't get Paul. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to put on Christ? Well, here's what I think it means. It means... That in some mysterious, intimate way, we are so joined to Jesus, we are in him, he is in us, that he now becomes our living reality. I mean, nobody but Christians talks like this, (laughs) right? I mean, I would say I'm an American, but I would never say I'm in George Washington, That's just crazy talk, right? But the Christian, I'm in Christ. He's not remote. He's not distant. No, he is our living reality. His living presence in us. We are connected to him. In fact, the Bible uses several metaphors to try to describe and explain this mysterious reality. John 15 we abide like branches connected to the vine Colossians 1 Jesus is the head we're connected as his body meaning that because we are in Christ we are connected to everything Jesus did everything Jesus is doing and everything he will do So what does Paul mean here in verse 27 we have put on Christ. How are we to understand this union with Christ? I think it means a few things. Number one, to put on Christ means to be baptized into Him. To be baptized into Him. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, every scholar I read would say that no doubt Paul has in mind here water baptism. Water baptism. In fact, this is the only explicit mission to baptism in Galatians. And what's so interesting, what's really kind of surprising here, is how Paul shifts here, notice in verse 26, from faith as the means of our union with Christ, faith in Christ, to baptism as the means of our union with Christ. So is Paul then suggesting, is he saying that water baptism is what unites us to Christ? It's what saves us? So some would say, well, no, no. As John Stott writes, we must give Paul credit for a consistent theology. In other words, he's not going to say one thing in one verse and then just a couple verses later say the exact opposite. He's No, give him more credit than that. So why is he not suggesting that water baptism saves us? Well, because that would contradict everything he has said thus far, right? Hasn't that been the clear answer in Galatians? You are saved by faith alone. So then why does Paul tie baptism here so closely to our union with Christ? Well, because, here's why. Baptism is... The sign of our spiritual union with Christ. It's the initiation into Christ. The sign of that. And that by faith we've been united to his life. That he lived for us. By his death that he died for us. By his resurrection that he's raising us up. And so what is true of Jesus now by faith is true of us as well. And baptism is the picture of that. Baptism is the, the symbol of that. In fact, it's really, it's really the capstone. It's really the, the culmination of our salvation, which is why the New Testament so often ties those two things so closely together. Acts chapter 2, what does Peter say? Repent and what? Be baptized. It's the capstone. It's the culmination. So to be baptized, immersed into water is the outward visible symbol you have been immersed into christ and so paul is saying here hey galatians galatians remember when you put on the waters of baptism you remember that do you remember what happened it meant that you have now put on christ and you are in christ and you are immersed in Christ. This is the public statement to the world that you are now one with Him. Which I think safeguards us from seeing baptism as essential and necessary for salvation. But, at the same time, it also safeguards us from minimizing the importance of baptism. That is not important at all. No, listen. If you are a Christian... And you have never been baptized. You need to be baptized. It's an important capstone. But that's not the only thing he means by putting on Christ. Second, to put on Christ means you've been clothed with Christ. Isn't that the imagery here of putting on? We have have put on Christ like a garment. We put on Christ like a shirt. We put on Christ like a robe. And that by faith in him, we have been clothed now in the robes of Jesus, his own righteousness. And so, that when God, Christian, when God looks at us now, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our guilt. He sees the righteous robes of his own son. Isn't that the gospel? That's the good news. We have been clothed by faith in the righteousness of Jesus. Here's another thing put on Christ means. It also means intimacy with Christ. Intimacy. Your clothes go everywhere you do. Or at least I hope they do. And so also Paul says, Christ goes everywhere you go. Christ does everything you do. Think about that. He is in us. He is with us. Living presence inside of us, which means the Christian life isn't about following a list of rules. The Christian life is about a living, personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. You wear Jesus into all of life and he now defines everything about you. Which is why Paul contrasts, notice in verse 23, being under the law with now, verse 26, being in Christ. The Christian life is about moment by moment dependence upon and intimate communion with the person of Jesus Christ. You have put him on. You are in him. Intimacy. That's what it means to put on Christ. But here's what I think Paul is most emphasizing with this imagery of union with Christ, putting on Christ. Paul has in mind here in verses 26 to 29 that the Christian now finds their primary identity in Him, that He is our ultimate identity, He's where it's found. It isn't in our gender. It isn't in our social class. It isn't in our rank. It isn't in our politics. It isn't in our culture. It isn't in the color of our skin. Our identity is not in our blackness or our whiteness or anything in between. No, our identity is found in Christ alone. So, Now I am clothed, I am identified with Him before I am with anyone or anything else. Christ is my life. Christ is my living reality. And all of those other barriers, all of those other distinctions come down because He is now my true ultimate identity. And that means that every member here is a living manifestation of Christ Do you see that brother or sister that you disagree with and differ from in that way? Listen church, this is huge. This is huge. We we live in an age and a culture that says that my identity is found in my gender, it's found in my ethnicity, It's found in my political affiliations. It's found in my social class. No, no. The gospel tears all of those down and says, no, Christian, your true identity, your ultimate identity is found only in Christ alone. And it means that if we are united to Him and we're one with Him, then we've also been united to one another as well. In fact, look at verse 28. Paul says, okay Christian, here's how you show this. Here's how you display this. Here's how you live it out. This union with Christ. Here's how you show the world you belong to Jesus. You live as one. Which leads to the third point. We have all become One in Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now the Bible is a dangerous book. You know why? Because... When you pull things out of context, you can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say. And the same has been true of this verse, of verse 28. It's often been pulled out of its context here in order to support various sexual, political, ideological agendas that it isn't supporting. And yet, verse 28 is Far more radical than any of those agendas. (laughs) It's revolutionary. How so? Well, because Paul is saying that our unity in the church, who we are in Christ, who we are as those who put on Christ by faith, our unity is in Jesus alone. That's the claim of the Christian gospel. We were natural enemies who love each other for the sake of Jesus. (laughs) That's radical. So, our unity isn't based on Jesus plus anything else. So, it isn't Jesus plus my culture, it isn't Jesus plus my views on economic policy. It isn't Jesus plus my views on politics. Yes, yes, all of those things. All of those things are important issues, but they're not ultimate issues. No, they don't ultimately define us. Christ alone defines us. So listen, I truly believe that what we're doing here in this church is infinitely more important than what happens out there in the world. I said it last week, what we're doing right now, it can sometimes feel mundane. But I actually believe, for example, that receiving new members into this church is way more important than what happens on Capitol Hill. Way more important. I mean, this is kingdom stuff, guys. This is the kingdom of God Touching down on earth. In fact, I don't know if this will encourage you or discourage you. But this right here is the closest you will ever get to heaven in this life. Right now. Hmm. And so, any earthly thing we try to cling to. Any earthly thing, any worldly attachment that we have. Anything that we try to find our identity in. Whatever that might be has the potential to divide us. But verse 28, Paul says, the church is this new community of people who are one and who love each other only for the sake of Jesus. So we get to do in here something the world can't do. No, we have the unique opportunity even to show the world what heaven looks like, to be so completely devoted and united to one another, to have this deeper, richer, more meaningful unity and fellowship and life together, even if, listen, even if we differ on a number of important but not essential issues. That's real unity. That's true unity. So in verse 28, Paul says that within the church, there are to be no ethical, no social, no sexual divisions, why? Because race and class and gender don't ultimately define us, Christ does, and therefore, they ought not ultimately to divide us either. Let me say that again. They don't define us, and therefore they shouldn't divide us. That's his point. No. Our oneness, our in Christness, just made up a word there. That, Paul says, is the basis of our fellowship. And all of those other barriers are smashed. They they must bow before Jesus. Because racial, social, sexual status doesn't make me any more or any less a son of God. No. So let's just consider then those three categories here for a moment. I'm actually going to take them out of order. First, our social status. Verse 28. There is neither slave nor free. That's quite the social divide, isn't it? Now, with, with that statement there, Paul is not, he is not condemning or condoning slavery. Yes, I think he would have condemned chattel slavery. But that wasn't slavery in the first century. In fact, in other places, he tells slaves even to seek their own freedom if they can, 1 Corinthians 7. He encourages master to treat, masters to treat their slaves fairly, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. And he tells even slaves to serve their masters well with honor, 1 Timothy Chapter 6, but what Paul is saying is that this divide, those divisions, don't ultimately determine our status within the church. And therefore, we have to be careful of allowing economic, social divisions within the culture to creep into the church. We don't associate in fellowship based on those categories. No. The poor and the wealthy are all equal in Christ. We all are equally recipients of the same grace. And therefore, none is superior. None is inferior among us. James chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothing, and you say to him, sit over here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? So the categories aren't oppressor and oppressed in this perpetual class struggle here, no, Those aren't biblical categories. No, there is no class. There is no status within the church, within God's family, because all of those have been obliterated because we are one in Christ. And so our identity isn't how much money we make or the job we have or the neighborhood we live in or if you wear a white collar or a blue collar. No, social status cannot and it should not divide us in the church. Philip Reitken writes, the church is our first family, and in that family, there are no second class children. Amen. Second, our gender divisions. Look there, verse 28. Our gender divisions. There is no male and female. Now, it's probably just as important that we establish what Paul isn't saying as we do what he is saying. He's not suggesting that all gender distinctions are gone. Just as if he's also not saying all racial, ethnic distinctions are gone as well. He's not telling us to be colorblind here. No, the church isn't this raceless, androgynous people. No, the church, when we come to Christ, we don't cease to be black. We don't cease to be white. We don't cease to be Asian, Hispanic, just as we don't cease to be male and female. Now, those distinctions are important, and they should be honored, and they should be celebrated. Nor is Paul suggesting that the roles of men and women are now obliterated too. Why? Well, because that would completely contradict what he says in other places, In the Bible as well, about the important differing roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. So, yes, yes, there are unique differences between men and women, but we're equal. Now, where do we see that here? Well, look there, verse 28. Notice the way Paul shifts in this distinction here, verse 28. Did you see it? There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You see that subtle distinction there? The and there is in the original language. It seems as if what Paul is doing here is he's hearkening back to Genesis 1 verse 27. Where if you remember, it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So, God creates man in his own image, male and female. So he's reminding the Galatians here that men and women are equal in terms of dignity and in terms of value because together we're made in the image of God. So then what Paul is saying is that amidst all of our differences as men and women, there is fundamental equality in Christ. In the first century, women were inferior. But Paul says in Christ, they must be seen as equals, men. Equals. Yes, differing roles, but equals. Equally gifted, equally able, equally important as men. Wow. You see, feminism in many ways, is simply a response to the misogyny of men who didn't respect and honor women the way God intended. It's not right. Because feminism reduces everything down to gender. And the Bible won't allow that. We are... Paul says, in Christ there is no male and female. Both under sin, both in need of God's grace and salvation, both in Christ. So there are no gender divisions. Last one. Our ethnic divisions. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, or you could say Gentile, I saved this one for last because I want to speak for a moment to this whole issue of race and racism. So just bear with me for a moment, if you will, please. Because it seems that this is the issue right now. Racial tensions are the news of our day. I mean, it's just just exploded. You, I'm sure, are face-to-face with it every single day. And here's what I want to say about it. That this issue is, hear me clearly, and is not a gospel issue. It is and it is not a gospel issue. Allow me to explain. First, this isn't a gospel issue in that if we Christians disagree on some various nuances of this whole discussion. For example, policing in America, reforming the criminal justice system, potential disparities in income and housing. If we disagree there, and those aren't clear cut, if we disagree there, and the Bible doesn't address them, if we disagree on some issues here, we stop anathematizing each other. Otherwise, we become guilty of the very same heresy of the Galatians. It's Jesus plus my view on this issue, or you're out. No, we're one in Christ. But on the other hand, this is a gospel issue in the sense that the ultimate solution to this whole issue of racism is the gospel <laughs> that's the answer in fact to disagree with that misunderstands the transforming power of the gospel because for paul to say now in christ there's no jew or greek oh that's shocking that's shocking the, the Gospel breaks down all cultural, ethnic, ethnical, racial barriers. Listen, racism is sin. Racism is wicked. Racism is evil. No matter who is doing the hating or the demeaning. Whether black or white or brown, it's evil. Because as I said earlier, We are all made in the image of God. And therefore, every human being has worth and dignity and significance. Male, female, born, unborn, slave, free, black, white, young, old, fit, disabled, them all. But, for those within the church, there is something even more that smashes the racial barrier. You know what it is? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're now one in him And no one is superior to another because of the color of their skin or the language they speak or where they come from. We are all equally in Christ, equally saved, equally sons of God, equally children of Abraham, equally co-heirs with Christ. So listen. This means we begin here in the church. We begin here by examining our own, heart, our own hearts and seeing if there is anything in us, any thoughts we might have that would lead us to think our race is just a little bit better. Our race is just a little more superior to the, than another. Because brothers and sisters, until we purge the sin in our own hearts, if it's there, in here, (laughs) we won't be of any use out there. But what an opportunity. Listen, we have to stand out in a divided world if we would simply exalt Christ who has saved us and now defines us. And we cherish and we love one another as equals. And this won't happen Through a politically correct agenda. This isn't going to happen by being on the right side of history. This isn't going to happen by getting woke. This isn't going to happen by any critical theory. No. It will happen through the inner transformation of the spirit in our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. So much so that we look like one person. We look like Christ because the gospel is what defines us and makes us one. I mean, do you realize this means that what connects me to a believer in Jesus living in Uzbekistan is far more ultimate, far more meaningful, far more important, far more lasting than that 38-year-old white suburban guy who's an unbeliever. My black brother over in Southtown is much more connected to me than my white next door neighbor. That's huge. And brothers and sisters, we have an enormous opportunity to show the world that Christian love is stronger than hate, stronger than anger, that unity in Christ is better than division and strife because if we are truly aware of how much we have been forgiven, if we are truly aware Of the dividing wall between us and God that has been broken down. If we're truly aware of the grace we've received, how can we not treat other people even better, perhaps, than they deserve? And the gospel is the only thing that can make any conversations about race and racism honest and helpful and hopeful. How can we Be the presence of Christ in a divided world. And listen, I don't have, okay, a lot of specific answers to many of these difficult, complex questions. But I do know one thing. I know that the place to begin is with the gospel. And the church as one body displaying that transforming power and that transforming grace so that we can take the gospel unity we have in there out there to the world. And let me just also say, this is a gospel issue in that one way we keep our conduct, our step with the gospel, in step with the gospel, Galatians 2.14, is by doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with our God. We want justice for all. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. We want to treat all people fairly. It means we look out for the weak and the vulnerable. I mean that's just basic Christianity. And we love everyone with the love that we have received in Christ. So second Baptist Church let's prove to all the experts all of the politicians all of the cultural analysts that ordinary people like us in southern Illinois is where heaven touches earth. I mean, if, if it isn't of heaven, why, do, why would we want it in here? Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that the wall between God and man has been broken down in Christ. The wall vertically and now the wall horizontally. Thank you for the, the forgiveness of sin that we have. Oh Lord, may you purge us as your people. May you help us to live as one. May you help us to show the unity we have in Christ to a divided world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing, O Church, Arise. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.